come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 46 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., here recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I am back to doing another Journey Through the Aughts episode where I have two featured reviews for you. And the first one is going to be the 2020 release of Imperigori. I might not be saying that right, but this is a new Jocko Anwar film from Indonesia. And then I also have, from 1960, is Tormented, and this is a kind of interesting schlock-type movie that actually has some pretty interesting elements, despite, you know, kind of the reputation that has for it. And then also on this episode, I am watching more of the Summer Challenge series from the T-Puts list, where I have 28 Days Later, Malefique, A Tale of Two Sisters, Paranormal Activity 2, and Old Boy will be the mini-reviews that are being featured on this episode, and then to kind of just fill you in on some of, you know, life things that have happened with me, I was supposed to go to Portland this weekend with my girlfriend Jamie, but because of the wildfires out there and everything like that, we decided that we were going to just kind of audible and cancel that trip and end up going down to Cincinnati for an amazing little one night stay down there and hit up some breweries and everything like that. So that is why I was able to watch a little bit more than what I was originally planning on doing. So I do hope that you enjoy the movies that I have, you know, mini reviews as well as featured on this episode. But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Hey, 
and welcome back. For my first mini review of this week is going to be 28 Days Later. This is directed by Danny Boyle. It was written by Alex Garland and it stars Cillian Murphy, Naomi Harris, and Christopher Alexton. This is a action drama horror sci-fi thriller from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Spain. This is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being four weeks after a mysterious, incurable virus spreads throughout the UK, a handful of survivors try to find sanctuary. Now, this is a film that I remember seeing in high school. My father took the family to see this, and it was a rare film that I feel like we all really enjoyed. I have owned this film for some time, but I had never actually reviewed it and, you know, watched it with a critical eye. Now, I did get to see it in the theater on a 35mm print and then gave my DVD a rewatch for the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, just to give a little bit more background information, as we kick this off with a group of activists that are trying to free some chimpanzees, they are being tested on, and we see that they're strapped down and being forced to watch, like, news footage of war and different types of riots and things of that nature now the activists are told not to release the apes as they are infected with something and when they you know do it anyways the woman is attacked and then we shift 28 days later to a hospital room where jim who is cillian murphy he wakes up naked and finds that his door is locked and there's a key on the floor and as he leaves he realizes he's all alone in london and this is because the infection has been widespread across the country and what is interesting is that the people don't even know if the world is completely ended or not because he does end up coming across some survivors like Selena, who is Naomi Harris, as well as Brendan Gleeson and his daughter in the movie. And they have to try to find somewhere where they can kind of hold up and make a new life for themselves. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just assume that most people have seen this one, including, you know, horror and non-horror fans alike, because, I mean, I would definitely say to give this a viewing. Now... I really like this, even though I don't necessarily know if it should fall into the zombie subgenre, as this is one of those gray areas where these are not, you know, reanimated corpses, but people that are infected with rage, which is a form of rabies. Now, I'm not going to harp too much on, you know, calling this a zombie film, because, you know, it is what it is. I put it in that subgenre, but it is not one of those films, in my opinion. What I really like about this film, though, is a deeper look at humanity. We have Jim, who's been in a coma for some time, and he wakes up kind of in this whole, you know, scenario. I don't think he's been out for the full four weeks, as, you know, he might have had some issues with dehydration, as well as maybe some of his, you know, muscles having kind of locked up from not being used for too long. But back to my original point is Jim wants to find his family and wants to help others. The world around them hasn't been jaded yet like it has been for Selena. She is interesting because when we first meet her, she believes that surviving is all that you know life has to offer. But the more that she hangs out with Frank, who is Gleason, and then his daughter of Hannah, who is Megan Burns, she starts to kind of soften up a bit. But what I like here, though, is that we have Hannah, who you know has a little bit of that softness still from the just the nativity nativity of her age, and then. Frank also seems to think there's good in the world. Now, as she is softening, though, Jim has a much darker turn that he has to kind of take on in order to help not only himself survive, but those around him that he cares about. And then we do get to meet some soldiers later on where I love that we get to see, you know, what mob mentality will do. I mean, we get to see that now with some of these, you know, protests going, you know, into full-blown riots. But then we, we also get this with large groups of people that are on both sides of the aisle that do some pretty horrible things when they see that other people around them are doing it as you kind of lose your identity as an individual and become part of a group. 
I think this movie for its almost two hour runtime doesn't feel like it. I think the film just has an interesting way to get you hooked and then it just constantly builds the tension until we get a solid climax. I think the acting is really good. Cillian Murphy is great. I like the changes that we get with his character, the who he becomes by the end of everything. Harris is also solid for you know taking a different turn in the film, but I think it also works very well. I th- I'm a big fan of Gleason. I thought he was solid in this. What happens to him is pretty sad. You know, even every time that I see it, you know, the older I get, it actually is more impactful for me. Burns is solid in her role. I think all the soldiers are good as a collective, and what happens with them is quite believable. And I have to give a shout out to all those that play infected people. They do great and round out for what this is needed here. I like that the effects in this are all done practically from what I could see. I do know there is some tricks with showing some of the places to have. It's more of just enhancing things is what I'm trying to say. Is there are some scenes where we get to see London, you know, being pretty much empty, which... From what I gathered is they did film those scenes without cars or anything like that and then just added things in post-production. I think that's what it's really good when you can do with effects like that. But the blood looks real. The disease is based in reality. And I could see some of the things that are actually happening in this movie actually happening. It's also shot pretty well in my opinion. There are some times that this time around I noticed that are kind of a little bit more low budget feel to it. But I mean it adds a little bit of character. But there are some great things that are done with some of the cinematography for sure. And the last thing really I just want to say is I love the soundtrack to this movie. This is one that I actually listen to on the regular when I'm writing. And I think it just does such well. It helps to build tension. And I think even in the spots where it's a little bit more docile, it still works for me just having that brooding, you know, kind of feel underneath everything. But this is actually one of my favorite, you know, infected, fast-moving zombie-type films. I've already kind of laid out all the things that I really enjoy for it. There's just some slight flaws that I can see in it that I can't go the full perfect score here, but I do come in with a 9.5 out of 10 on this movie. And then I have for you a first-time watch of Malefique. I think that's how you say that. This is directed by Eric Vallette. This is, the scenario is co-written between Alexander Charlotte and Frank Mengier. And this came from the idea from Francois Cognard. And this stars Gerald LaRoche, Philippe Ladenbach, and Clovis Cornillac. This is a fantasy horror mystery film from France. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being four prisoners find an ancient diary in the wall of their cell, which might be the key to getting out. Now, this is a movie that I will be honest, I had never heard of until I saw the list of movies for the Summer Challenge series for the Podcast Under the Stairs 2000s edition. This was one that I was intrigued with when I heard the episode, and it took me some time to find a copy of it, as this is in French, so keep that in mind because I had to watch it with subtitles. Aside from that, though, I came in pretty blind. Now, just to kind of give a little bit more background information is we get to see this interesting scene that starts off with a guy named Charles Danvers, who is Jeffrey Carey. There's a man bleeding on the ground next to him. Charles has a book, and he's chanting it in another language, and he's also drawing symbols on the wall of stone in front of him. Then they start to glow, and then we shift away, and then this is where we get to meet some of our main characters. We have Carreri, who is LaRoche. As he's in prison and he is having a talk with his wife of Claire, who is Felicia Massoni, and then his son of Hugo, who is Paul Alexander Bardella. Now, he believes that he'll be getting out soon. He just needs his wife to post the bail, and he promises his son that he'll be out for his birthday, even if that means he has to escape. His son then gives him an action figure that he is to bring back to him when he's released, and then the cell that he ends up getting put in is with Lasala, who is 
Ladenbach, Marcus, who is Clovis Kornilak, and then Pekeretti, who is Dimitri Renaud. Now, the first images that we get is Marcus chopping off the end of Pekeret's finger to get him to go to the infirmary. They consider this to be kind of like a vacation to go there. Now, this isn't the first time that's happened either, as we do see one of his other fingers is chopped off at the, you know, the last knuckle. Now, Marcus is working out to get stronger, and I should also point out that he has breasts and is a wig, and it looks like he wants to be a woman, but he hasn't been brave enough yet to go full and, you know, still has his penis. And then LaSalle is a former college professor who murdered his wife in a state of dementia. Now, they end up discovering this kind of hole behind a brick in their wall where there is a diary that is one that we saw earlier in the film. Now, they start to kind of mess around this and see that it might actually have some power and that it actually can give them everything they want, but it might not necessarily be exactly how they think. Now, as I said, I didn't know a whole lot coming into this movie, as this came out around the time when the only new horror that I was watching would have been in the theaters, because I still would have been in high school at this time, and I hadn't ventured much into the foreign ones yet, but this does have some of my sweet spots with, you know, magic, a cursed book, and a contained setting. Now, this whole cursed book idea is that Danvers was a murderer who is trying who believed that he could do kind of supernatural things and he wanted to try to find a way to keep himself younger now i should be pointed out he's locked up back in the early 20s and he was actually using placenta to try with like potions and stuff like to make him from that now before getting locked up he was versed in the dark arts and this is where he you knows keeping a record in this book taking this farther though the book starts to change as they use it and this is something that i really enjoyed now they think that it'll help him to escape but that's at least what everybody thought that Danvers used it for. The truth is much darker as this book gives you your true desire, as I said, but it does it in a way of let's be careful what you wish for type of way. Or I mean, I guess not necessarily because it does give you your deepest desire. Seeing that what it does to these guys is actually pretty creepy for some of them. And the effects are really good and it kind of delves into a little bit of body horror as it progresses. Now, since I've shifted over to it, let me go over the effects and how this was shot. We get some great practical ones from someone who is folded up and their bones being broken, cutting off of the fingers and making cuts into people's skin as it goes. I didn't really notice if they use any CGI aside from some lights used, and I will be honest, I cringe at a few parts with some of the things they gave us. If you can do that, you got me. I also like that a camera is introduced for a creepy sequence, and I like that not everything they see is real, and then this is coupled with some good cinematography. Another aspect I liked was the setting of the, you know, contained horror thing here is that we're pretty much have three main characters. And for the most part, the other ones are there just to help develop the story and to raise the stakes. But being in the cell the whole time is great because, you know, they're in prison, so they can't go anywhere. And I like the idea that you're stuck somewhere and that there's nothing you can do to kind of get away from it. And speaking of the characters, I think the acting is good. I like that LaRoche is quiet and that he has a good upbringing. He decided to break the law as he saw that hard work and what it did to his parents, and he would rather to get what he can and enjoy life in a shorter amount of time. He looks at it as more of a sprint than a marathon type idea. There's a dimension added, though, with his son Hugo, as it, he does kind of want to prolong his life somewhat. Ladenbach is good as this character who's harboring a dark secret, and that he really just has a thirst for all knowledge. It is his downfall that he can't have it. And then we have... Kronolak, who is interesting that he's a strong guy but wants to be a woman but it's kind of interesting that he won't go the full way and it seems that he loves the control of everything that he has in this cell and the rest of the cast is really well and round this out for what was needed and i especially have to give credit to renaud because he does play somebody who is mentally challenged very well 
So that's really all I wanted to kind of delve into this movie. It just has some really good aspects that I really kind of enjoyed. I don't really have a whole lot negative to say. This is a movie that I don't necessarily know is going to go that much higher because it's not really delving too much into, into some deeper kind of ideas or not. But this is still one I would highly recommend, especially if you can handle films that are subtitled. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And up next I have A Tale of Two Sisters. This came out in 2003. The original title here is Jiangwa Hungry Yon. And this was written and directed by Jiwoo Kim. It stars Katsu Kim, Jong Yum, and Su Jung Liam. If I said those wrong, I do apologize. And this is a drama horror mystery thriller from South Korea. This is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a family is haunted by the tragedies of deaths within the family. Now, this is a movie that I first heard about in college. For whatever reason, I hadn't gotten around to seeing it yet, but I knew about it since I got a lot of buzz in the States. Something I didn't know was that this was the first Korean film to get a wide release in theaters over here. Now, I'm not completely sure if this was in the horror genre or just in general, but that's pretty amazing either way. And I will admit, I did see the American remake first of The Uninvited, and it was one that I enjoyed, but I was excited always to see this original one. Now, to kind of give you just a most like general overview of this story is that we have... Sumi Ba, who is Lim, as she's talking to her doctor, who is portrayed by Dae Yuan Lee, as he asks her questions. She doesn't respond to him, though. And what I like here is that we don't necessarily know if this is the present or in the past. And then we then shift to a car as it arrives to a fairly large house. The person driving is the father of Mu Huan Bei, who is Kapsu Kim. And then with him is our two daughters of Sumi and Su Yuan, who she is portrayed by Yuan Young Moon, and it is there that they come face to face with their stepmother of Yuan Ju Hua, who is Jong Ah Yum, and this is where we get some of the tension as you know before the girls go up to their rooms. Now, through pictures, we learn that there is some animosity towards Yun Ju as she was a doctor. Their mother of Mrs. Ba, who is portrayed by Mi Huan Park. It seems that she came in contact with this family while she was, I don't know if she was sick, but she ends up passing away and she is now married to their father, which bothers the daughters. And it should also be pointed out that Su Yuan is more timid, so Su Mi really wants her to tell her everything so she can help protect her. Now tensions end up rising in this, but not everything is as it seems. And what I really want to say here is that this original one goes much more in depth. I will admit, I knew what the reveal was, at least part of it coming into this. But I like how this movie is, like I said, much deeper in some of the things that they have here. And it makes it so much better for doing that. Now, before coming into actually watching this, something in the shutter description, because that's where I watched this, is that they said that this was like a Shakespearean tragedy. And I think that really fits everything that we're kind of getting here. Now, one thing that this movie is doing is that we are playing with the unreliable narrator, which sometimes is a hard thing to kind of tiptoe, but I think this movie does well in that. And something that, since I knew what the reveal was, I was watching the characters to see how they would interact, and I will say that I got sucked into the movie, and because the reveal here isn't necessarily the exact same, that really helps here. I also like that this is coming from South Korea, as they do play into the supernatural elements a little bit more, and I'm really a big fan of that. And then going back to the Shakespearean tragedy type thing here, this is all hinged on what happened to Mrs. Ba. 
We know that she passed away, hence why Hyun Ju is there. Seeing that she killed herself and the effects that it has on her daughters is great. And it also explains why Su Yuan is terrified of a wardrobe that is in her room. Now the reveal of everything though is both aggravating as well as sad. And I'll be honest though, I was a bit confused at the end. So I did have to read up on some trivia which confirmed some of the things that I thought and then filled in what I didn't. And now that I'm looking back on it, it does piece itself together very well. And I like how this movie doesn't necessarily need to hold your hand to doing that, which is why I kind of had to read up on something just to make sure that I was correct in my you know thoughts. And then I want to take this to the acting here is that no one really stands out to be honest, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. Kim is somebody that I feel like is caught between is in a hard place. You can't blame him for moving on, but it is tough for who he has like chosen. He wants what is best for everybody. It is just that everything is wearing on him. Yuma is probably the best performance for me, to be honest. We see then everyone gets to the house and how she is just taken over. There is a flip of her character, though, that is completely different, and I loved it, especially learning, you know, what the reveal is here. Lim is solid, and I think, along with Moon, they show a lot of depression and sadness. Su Yuan is a bit more subdued, which makes sense with the reveal, and Su Zhuang is strong, but just barely hanging on. And the rest of the cast rounds us out for what was needed. And the last thing I wanted to go over here would be the effects. I love that we don't get a lot of them, and it doesn't really need them. They do so well with the practical ones that we get in the movie, and there's a creepy scene with Mrs. Ba that involved blood running down her leg and a hand. I did read up on this a little bit, and I had some thoughts, and then it confirmed, and it makes a whole lot of sense when piecing everything together as well. We also get things that don't necessarily know if they're real or not, but this all makes sense in the end. And then the cinematography is very well done in framing shots, and I have to give credit there. Now, I'm glad that I finally saw this. This is truly superior to how they frame this story with the characters that is, you know, unreliable, and then we question everything that we are seeing. It coming from South Korea, I like that they don't shy away from the supernatural elements, and I really enjoyed that. The story here is just much deeper, and I think that the acting, although no one stands out, it really works for me. And then aside from that, the soundtrack just fit for what was needed in developing the atmosphere. I will warn you, if you're listening to this and you don't really like subtitled films, I would avoid this, but I think you're missing out on an interesting take on the haunted house, psychologically broken character type narrative. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this film. And then I have Paranormal Activity 2. This comes from 2010. It was directed by Todd Williams. And the screenplay is written amongst Michael R. Perry, Christopher Landon, and Tom Pabst. And this comes from a story that Michael R. Perry came up with, and it's also based on the film Paranormal Activity from Oren Pelly. This stars Katie Featherston, Micah Slout, and Molly Ephraim. Now this is a little bit misleading because those two are really kind of just credited from the other one. They do have a cameo, but outside of that, I would also say that Sprague Graydon and Brian Boland are the other stars of this movie. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after experiencing what they think are a series of break-ins, a family sets up security cameras around their home only to realize that the events unfolding before them are more sinister than they seem. Now, I remember when this film first came out in the theaters, I really liked the original one, so when I heard they were doing a sequel, I jumped on the chance to see it. To be honest, I'm pretty sure I like this more since they expanded on what the original one did. 
I have kind of cooled a little bit on this one, but I have seen it just a few times, but it's been quite a while. And I mean, I've seen them throughout the years. And then Jamie and I gave it a viewing as I wanted to do a more proper review of it. And it also fell into this Hooptober movie challenge that I'm doing on Letterboxd. And it filled in a few categories over there. Now, really just kind of get you up to speed for this one is we are following the Rays. Now, Christy, who is Graydon, is the sister of Katie, who is portrayed by Katie Featherston. Christy is married to Daniel, who is Brian Boland, and the footage starts on the day that they bring home their new son of Hunter, who is portrayed by two little boys of William Juan Preto and Jackson Zania Preto. Now, Daniel also has a daughter that he brings to their marriage of Allie, who is Ephraim. Now, they come home one day and their house is trash and it looks like somebody had broken in. What's interesting here, though, is the only thing that they really seem to notice is missing is a ring that has to do with Katie. Now, they end up deciding to put in security cameras all around the house, so that's where most of our footage is coming from. We do also get a bit of that handheld camera stuff as both Daniel and Allie will carry them at different times. And it is interesting, though, is that Micah comes over one day and this gives him the idea to you know, kind of get a camera for his place, and that leads into the events of what happened in the original film. Now, much like the other one, we get some weird things that start to happen, and the security cameras, you know, pick up a lot of that footage, which is an extra element. Pots fall from, like, a hanging rack. A pool cleaner keeps leaving the pool. There are bumping noises, and Hunter seems to be focused on something that no one else can see. And to make matters worse, Allie, with her boyfriend, decided to do a seance with a Ouija board. And they also have a maid of Martine, who is Vivi's... Columbietta, who feels that there's dark, something dark inside of their house. Now, what I like about this movie is that for a sequel for me, and I think for most people, is you really have to expand on what the first one does and kind of build on that. I like by adding the you know security camera here is a great way of doing that because it kind of explains a little bit of why is somebody always carrying you know the camera around. So if you can kind of move away from that, that really does help things. Now, I know a big gripe for some people is that these movies really don't have anything happen. I do agree that for this movie, I do feel that it does less. Now, we get some things with the baby and then some things at the end, but really that's about it. The original plays more on the you know psychological aspects with Katie descending into madness. Chrissy does as well, but nowhere near as much. And the aspect with the baby can be a bit nerve-wracking. You know, adding the dog is another element since they are supposed to be more in tune with the supernatural, supposedly. But I do like this builds on the mythology like I keep saying. I think this movie adding some of the elements that it does feels like a bridge to what we get in the third or fourth film. Now I can't give credit to those yet because you know they probably were in the works but if this movie tanks they don't come along. But I still think that if it ended here it doesn't ruin the story with anything that it introduces. I think that the acting is good across the board. No one really stands out or is going to win any awards, but I just feel like the characters feel natural and feel real around each other, which is something I really look forward to when I have a found footage film, is that these feel like normal people. I like the introduction of the security cameras. I think that helps with the realism, as I said. And then this movie at the near the end does give off some vibes of like wreck with what they're doing with the handheld camera. I do like that. I know there's a bit of CGI here. Or at least someone in a green suit for some of these things. But none of it goes over the top to look fake. So I can work with that. And then something I will say that's a kind of a lesser part here would be the sound design. Now, this one's not as strategic. We do get some of the heavy footsteps and banging, but not as much. We get more of the dog barking and baby crying, which does work for something different. Especially because I start to feel bad for them. It's just not as effective. But again, like I said, nothing that ruins the movie. But I'm glad they didn't include music to ruin the effect. So like I said, I think this is a good follow-up. I don't think it's as good now, and I've, like I said, I've kind of cooled on it. I still think this is an above-average movie, and I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 on this one. 
And then for the last film that I'm going to have on this episode is going to be Old Boy from 2003. This is the under the original title, though, of Oldia Boy, as this is the original one from South Korea. This is directed by Chan Woo Park, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Jun Huang Lim, Joe Yoon Hwang, and it stars Min Seek Choi, Jai Tai Yo, and Hai Juan Kang, which I do apologize if I butchered any of the names that I have been relaying there. This is an action drama mystery film, and I'll actually can get into, because there's a lot of contention if this should be considered a horror film or not, but this, as I said, is from South Korea, sitting on a 8.4 on IMDb and a 4.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after being kidnapped and imprisoned for 15 years, Ho Dai Su is released only to find that he must find his captor in five days. Now, this is a movie that when I first got into listening to podcasts, I heard a lot about, and it went on my short list of movies to see because I've heard so many people saying how this was a classic. Now, it took me a while and to actually you know watch it. Now, something that is interesting is there's quite a bit of debate, as I said, if this is horror or not. Before actually seeing this, I heard a lot of the arguments on both sides, and I can see why some do think it is, while others don't. All that I review is horror. You can kind of guess where I lie, and I'll get into that here just in a minute. But just to expand on the synopsis, we have our main character of Su, who is portrayed by Choi. Now, while he's at a police station, he's really drunk, and his friend of No Ju Huan, who is portrayed by Dae Han Ji, shows up to help him you know, get out of, to take him home pretty much. Now they go into a payphone to call his family and then we get to see a that it's raining that there's a pair of angel wings that are in a paper bag. Now things take a turn because the next thing that we get is Su as he's in a room with a steel door. There's a little hatch that is opening at the bottom and he pleads to his captor to be let go. Food is put through and then is closed and then we get to really kind of see that he's in this, it looks almost like a hotel room, but he's been locked in there. He starts to tattoo marks on his hand for each year that he's there. He uses the television to help keep time, the date, almost like a school at home as well, and even church. Now, there's a picture that is hanging of, I'm not really sure what the face is, but I mean, it is supposed to be a face, but it's not like a normal like picture or um, a very realistic looking painting. But there's the lines of, laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you cry alone. Now that's a motif that'll keep coming back. And then we also get something weird here where he is knocked out periodically with gas. And they cut his hair and kind of do his upkeep there. But then one day, he gets hypnotized and wakes up on a rooftop. And there's actually an opening sequence where there's a guy hanging over the edge. And he's being held up by his tie while he's holding a dog. Now the person then states that he wants to tell his story to him. The person holding the person up is Daesu. He's now free, and he must figure out why he's been held captive for these 15 years. Now, this will bring him to meet a young girl of Mi-Do, who is Hai Jung Kang. Now, she ends up taking in Daesu to help him, you know, mess with his wounds and kind of clean everything up there. And we keep seeing this reoccurring character of Lee Woo Jin, who is Jay Tai Yu. Now, he has five days to figure out what happened to him and why he was held captive kind of interesting is that the date that he has to figure everything out is by july 5th which is my birthday so he must go through like i said and if he doesn't figure it out by then he's the person's going to start killing off all the women in his life that he loves and that's where the mystery starts going and it takes him down a deep dark path that involves torture and his pursuit of revenge but it's a much deeper plot than everything like that now most of what i really kind of want to get into is you know addressing the elephant in the room here is old boy a horror movie it for sure, for me, falls in the adjacent category as there are some really dark elements. 
This movie is really a revenge film that actually plays in that kind of thing more than one way. This character of Lee that we keep seeing wants revenge on Daesu, and he wants his revenge back on him as well. We get some action as there are some wild sequences of that. There is drama, there is mystery, and this for sure is a thriller. What I've left out though is this, why is this a horror movie? I personally think that there's enough of the elements that, like I said, you can include it on a list, but I can also see the argument of how you would necessarily want to make it, you know, the top horror film from the year or anything like that, as this is all kind of being argued about over on the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series. I mean, it's pretty dark to be held in a cell for 15 years. When he's released, he's told that he's in another type of prison, and he has to come to terms with what happened to him to get his revenge. There are a few scenes of graphic images of violence that doesn't necessarily make it horror though is that makes it almost more like exploitation i do think that this falls into that modern type film where there is like i said the torture and the truth behind the sexual elements are pretty dark as well the long game and the reveal of everything is really dark with our main villain you know being scared and being perverse what he pushes and forces desu into is pretty horrific what i really like about this movie though is the acting seeing the effects of everything that happened to Choi, and i just love how he plays with the damage that it's caused being held in a room for 15 years without any real contact with anybody and i mean a lot of that is he keeps doing the smile that he'll put on to in the mirror as well as other people just trying to almost fit in because he's lost so much time and not having anybody around him that i mean it almost goes back to an argument i've made on a previous episode about people that were like homeschooled and not really generally socialized into kind of society where you don't necessarily have the social norms on the other side of this, we have you. The grudge he's holding and why he is is hard to fault him, but what he does goes over the top, so I can't necessarily get behind it, and the effects of the event behind this have similar effects to what he's trying to do as well. Kang plays her role pretty well. Her reveal was spoiled for me, but to be honest, it didn't affect my viewing of the movie. I'm not going to reveal what it is, but she plays her role well, and we can get to see her topless, which that's something you're never going to hear me complain about. I'd say the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. And the last thing I really just want to go over would be the effects. We don't get as much as I was expecting, but I'm glad that they went practical. There are some action sequences, as I said, where we get Daesu fighting groups of guys, and they don't always look the greatest, but I've seen better here than in some action movies where that's the focal point. We get torture sequences that look realistic, and there was one in particular with a claw of a hammer and teeth that made me cringe. There's also um, the scene that plays with this that I enjoyed. The blood in the movie looked good, and the cinematography is solid. I did see that this is based on a comic, and I could tell that before confirming. It looks like they pulled certain scenes right off of a page and brought them to life, which that does work for me as well. So I'm really glad that I finally ticked this one off my list. This is an interesting revenge film that has a deeper story than I was expecting. For the modern era, Koreas just know how to do the revenge movie. I think that the acting had our three stars really helps progress everything. The practical effects work. This clock's in about two hours, and I barely noticed that. It held my attention, and I loved piecing together the story as we go. Daesu trying to remember and learn things just as we are. I think that's a kind of fun thing to follow. This is one that I have a feeling that my rating is going to go up. I can't come in with a perfect score with this as my first viewing, as that's a new rule that I'm setting for myself to not get caught in the moment. But this is a great movie for sure, and I'm interested in giving this a second viewing now that I've seen it, to you know, knowing everything plays out. So I'm going to come in at this time with a 9 out of 10, and that's going to end my mini reviews here. I'm going to send you over to the trailer for my first featured review. Gue nyesel banget ngajak lo bisnis karena tabungan lo habis. Emangnya lo maksa? Kan gue juga yang mau. Kayaknya gue mau pergi seminggu deh. Mana? Kamu 
perempuan itu nggak terlalu penting. Ya tapi kan sebenarnya tahu mereka siapa. Iya sih, apalagi kalau orang tua ninggalin harta banyak. Ya wong desa itu tuh desa terpencil mbak, nggak ada apa-apa. Gede banget rumahnya. Sini kok banyak banget ya, kuburan anak kecil. And for my first featured review of this episode, I have Impetigore from 2019, at least that's how I think it is pronounced. It has the original title of Paramanpuan Tana Jananam. Not sure if I said that right or not, but I was going to take a stab at it. This is written and directed by Joko Anwar. This stars Tara Basro. Ario Bayou and Marissa Anita. And then also in the cast, we have Christine Hockham, Azamara Abigail, Kiki Nanarandran, Zindi Hakam, Faridin Mutafi, Abdurrahim Arif, Muhammad Abe Basin, Murasayantu, Ahmed Ramadanan, Ara Agna, Zindris Ogiski G. And Devone Queenie. And I do apologize if I said those names wrong or anything like that. I was trying my best, but I'm sure I did butcher some of those. So once again, I do apologize. This is an drama horror mystery thriller from Indonesia and South Korea. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Maya with her best friend, Dinny tries to survive in a city without a family she realizes that her family might have had been rich and she inherits a property maya returns to the village with denny and unaware of the dangers that are awaiting her now this is a movie that i heard about through podcasts and then when i saw that it was on the shutter app i didn't put it together that this was indonesian until i learned that the writer director was anwar i really enjoyed his previous film of satan slaves which i will bring up a few times in this review and i saw it a couple years ago and you know decided since i like that one so much that i would give this a go and i will be honest i did watch this on my phone while at my girlfriend's parents house so i will get into um why i kind of bring that up now a little bit later in the review of this but then just a little bit more background with some of the players in this is the director, Anwar, has 16 projects to his credit. Three of them are horror films. Now, I have seen two of them now with this one, as well as I said, Satan Slaves. He also did The Forbidden Door back in 2009, along with some shorts and an episode of a show called Folklore. And then as a writer, he has 21 projects. Aside from writing this movie, 
He has other three other horror films written. All of the movies that I've named, you know, previously that he directed, he also wrote them. And there was another project called The Queen of Black Magic as well, as there are some co-writing on a miniseries entitled Half Worlds. It also appears that Tara Basro has worked with Anwar regularly. Now, she stars in this as Maya. Now, she has 17 acting credits to her name. Seven of them are in the horror genre. Aside from here, she was in Satan Slays as the lead there. She was also in that miniseries of Half Worlds, and those are all with Anwar. She was also in something called Killers, Ruma Dan Muzum Hujan, and something called Hysteria, where the S in it is a 5. And then the actor of Ario Bayou has been in more projects than his co-star. He has been in 33 of them as an actor, but much like his co-star, seven of them are in the genre. He is appearing in the Queen of Black Magic that was penned by Anwar, as well as in Half Worlds and The Forbidden Door. Aside from that, he was in The Returning, Dead Mind, and Macabre. With the last one, um, Anwar also acted in that one as well. Now, those are all the other genre films that he has been in. And then we have Anita, who has only had nine acting roles to her credit. Now, two of them are in the horror genre. Aside from this one, she was in the show Folklore that, you know, kind of brings it back to stuff that has worked with with Anwar. And to get into this movie now, we start off with two young women as they're working in toll booths. Maya, who is Basro, is working in one that is slow and not very well lit. On the other hand, we have Dinny, who is portrayed by Anita, working in a one that's a little bit more busy. The two of them are talking on the phone, where they just have it on speaker and just kind of going back and forth, and their normal night gets darker, though, when Maya states that there is a guy who has gone through a couple of times and has tried talking to her. He comes back again, and Maya panics when he pulls off just past the booth itself and starts walking towards her. He comes up there and knocks on the door of it and asks if her name is Raya Hu, and she tells him no, and Dini alerts the authorities about what is going on here. The man then comes back with a machete and then chases after Maya. He ends up cutting her leg and knocks her out, and as he's going to kill her, though, the police show up and shoot him. And the movie shifts us three months ahead. The two women have quit their jobs and have opened up a clothing store. They're actually trying to peddle some cheap imitations that aren't very good looking and it appears that most of their best business is done online so there's really no point in them having you know this physical location the two women then go into a bathroom and they're kind of chit-chatting in there and maya sees a picture that you know she has of her family and the two of them are kind of talking about their families at this point we learn that maya was raised by her aunt and didn't really you know tell her much about the rest of her family but then when Dinny leaves and Maya sits on the toilet, the cut on her leg still looks to be pretty fresh despite the time that has gone by. Now, she ends up finding that there's a note inside of it. And yes, I mean pulling it from her leg. She takes a picture of it, but then accidentally drops it in the toilet when Dinny comes in and kind of startles her. Maya learns from a picture that she has and from the crazy man that... She's from this small village that no one really knows a whole lot about. There's a famous puppeteer of Kai Steptati, who is Bayo. And then the two women take a bus and then an expensive horse-drawn carriage to get there. As they're entering, you know, the outskirts of the village, they end up seeing the house from Maya's picture. And they end up seeing that it's quite huge. They search through it along with, you know, asking questions of people in the village, which causes those in the town to become suspicious of them. And then some horrific things have happened here 20 years ago that involve Maya Stempati, his mother of Niu Mishni, who is portrayed by Christine Hakim. And then there's Kai Donawangaso, who is Zindi Hakim. 
as well as Naya Shinta, who is Ferrandi Futi. And then the effects are still being felt by this village as well. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap, as I've already stated that I was on board to check this out since I like the writer-director's previous film. This one does have an interesting idea that hooked me from the beginning as well, with this whole toll booth thing where she gets attacked. The premise here works for me of Maya, you know, really being a kind of an orphan. I mean, her parents aren't around and are presumed dead and that she was raised by her aunt. She doesn't really know a whole lot about her past and there's this interesting dichotomy of Denny having a family, but she's not really close to them, so she kind of feels like an orphan herself and it's fitting that the two of them, you know, kind of cling to each other as best friends. There are similar elements here to what we got in Satan's Slaves as well. I don't know much about the family unit for individuals from Indonesia, but it seems that there are some pretty thick bonds. Having Maya not have a family makes it feel like she's more of an outsider, so I can believe that she would be seeking out trying to find out where she's from. And I'm not going to lie though, it is creepy going all the way to this remote village like she does. Now I bring up the family dynamic though with Kai Steptati. He lives with his mother, who is quite overbearing, she is overprotective over her son, and this does create issues to the overall story, as we will see with things that play out here. Now, I'm not going to have a spoiler section, as this is still pretty new, and I think a lot of people should end up seeing this, especially if they're trying to do like a year-end list to see all of the you know solid films from the year. As I don't necessarily think this film is going to be in my top 10 at this time. I do want to rewatch it though, but this one is pretty good and would be one that you need to kind of round out your viewing in my opinion, especially if you have Shudder. And I say that because the moment we get to this village, we get this kind of just creepy vibe going on here. And it doesn't take long to figure out that this mother is overbearing with they meet her pretty early on and what she does kind of confirms that. Now, I will share a bit that the curse in this village is that anybody who has a baby, it is born without skin. I won't share to why this is happening, what the cause of it is, as there are a lot of moving parts with what is going on here, to be honest. What I will bring up, though, is that everyone in the small village blames Kai Dono Wangasko and his daughter of Rai Huyu. After dropping that on, I want to shift over to the fact that Anwar does such a great job with building tension in his movies. This one runs around 105 minutes, but to be honest, it didn't feel like it. The movie does an excellent, excellent job of hooking me in with this wild first sequence. I'm someone who likes to investigate, so trying to figure out what is going on here keeps me, you know, kind of focused on trying to piece things together. With that fact, you have childbirth as, you know, part of it, which freaks me out in normal circumstances. He also loves to show us the duality of organized religion, in this case with Islam, and kind of showing the duality with the more primitive beliefs that were on this islands before, you know, that, like, these organized religions actually came there. The superstitious things that happen make me think of things my mother would tell me that her and her family would believe. Now, I bring that up because they are German, so they have, obviously, these weird home remedies or just these superstitious beliefs of things that you can't do, so I kind of like seeing those play out in different cultures. That will take me next to the acting. Basro was also in Satan Slaves, as I said, and I thought that she was good there. She follows this up with me as a, you know, another thing where she does a, plays a really good character. She is strong-willed, and I believe that she will get to the bottom of things no matter what. This is paired well with Anita, who doesn't necessarily want to find the truth, but she wants to go on an adventure with her friend, and I mean, there's also the possibility that her friend is rich. She wants to, you know, not be left behind there as well. 
Bayou is good as someone that you don't really know if you can trust or not from the beginning. He seems to have this kind of shady side, but he also as like this almost this person who's in charge of the village. You kind of do want to still believe him. And then there's Mishni. I completely despise this woman from first meeting her, so I have to give her credit for how well she plays this role. Aside from that, the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. It's a bit difficult to keep some of the people straight, but I think Anwar does well in giving enough people differentiating things to figure out despite, you know, not me being up on the culture and everything. And I don't want to come off as I'm racist, but, like, a lot of these characters do look very similar to me. And But he does enough distinct things for each one of them that I was like, oh, this is that character, this is that character. So I do have to give a lot of credit for that. Shifting this over to the effects movie, I think they do a solid job there. We don't really get a whole lot of them, to be honest, but what would they do, I think, are done practically, which is well done. It really looks like Maya gets her leg cut, and that is when it is happening. I'm sure that they use CGI for what happens with Denny, but it was framed and shot in a way where it's hard to kind of tell, so I couldn't pick that apart, which I think is good. And I will say that Anwar knows how to shoot a movie as well. He does such a great job with the framing, depth of field, and some of the other things that are done with the cinematography that I find out to be just amazing. And the last thing I want to go over here would be the soundtrack. I really like that they have with this opening attack, its sequence is paired up with a creepy, upbeat song. It doesn't sound like it would fit, but it just gave me an eerie feel with how the duality of the two things. So I did like that. And aside from there, we get some chanting that makes me feel uncomfortable. And the rest of the score really just kind of helps to accent what is needed in making this movie feel creepy. And then before I kind of close everything out here, I do want to share a little bit of trivia that I found. This movie was made based on Anwar's Bad Dreams in 2008. He also wrote the screenplay several year, years earlier and then just started filming in 2019. Basro, Bayou, and Anita are frequently seen in Anwar's films, which is kind of a cool thing that they all work together, which I kind of brought up in my kind of opening things. This movie marks as the first horror film for Hakam, and then there's another part of that that I'm not going to share here. If you kind of gathered from some of the things that I said, you can kind of figure out what they're going to go with with the rest of that, but I did want to share that little bit there. Then just to close this out, I really like this movie. Anwar does some interesting things, again, with this, and it pairs well with Satan Slaves in some of the themes, and you could even do a double bill of these two, and I think it would be not only creepy, but flow well together. I like the blending of the old world with the new, modern world with religion, as well as some of the other aspects of the story. The acting is solid across the board. Effects and soundtrack are both good to help build the tension along with the feel of the movie. The last thing would be I think the cinematography is both creepy and beautifully done, and I'd say this movie is good, and one that I'm going to, as I said, revisit before the year end just to see if this is going to move up or down. I think it's just right now sitting outside of my top 10, but is hovering right there, and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review and for the 1960s film for this Journey Through the Ops segment. No one will ever love you more than I do. Can a man step away from his past into a future free from fear? Or must a dead past return? making of every living moment a time tortured, tormented. <laughs> tormented, holding you spellbound for the she-ghost of Haunted Island.
her dreams of desire overshadowed by nightmares. Can a dead love's lust destroy a man? Or can a man defy the she-ghost of Haunted Island? It's going to be just as though you never existed. I'm going to marry Meg. But at the wedding rehearsal was one uninvited guest. I'll never let you marry Meg. You belong to me, Tom. You belong to a ghost. Tom Stewart killed me! Tom Stewart killed me! second featured review on this episode and like i said the one from 1960 is going to be tormented this is directed by bert i gordon who also came up with the story but george worthing yates wrote the screenplay this stars richard carlson susan gordon and Lugene sanders as well as julie redding joe turkle lillian adams gene roth vera marshy harry fleer merritt stone George Stanley, Dick Walsh, and Leslie Thomas. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a man lets a former flame fall to her death rather than let her interfere with his new relationship, but her ghost returns to disrupt his impending nuptials. Now, this is another film that I'd never heard of until I was going through Letterboxd for films that were from the year 1960. The name of the director I did recognize from somewhere, and he also, like I said, helped come up with the story, but I wasn't necessarily sure where I knew it. Now, Gordon, as I said, after looking through his filmography, it did click that he did a lot of lower-budget stuff in the 1950s and 60s primarily, and but this one was a new one to me, though. And then to kind of get into that there, he has 25 director credits, 12 of them in the horror genre. He really liked to work with giant creatures or people. Now, the first of these that I've ever seen was his first film in the genre of Beginning of the End, which I believe has like Peter Graves, I believe, stars in that. And it's about giant grasshoppers. And then, of course, he did Tormented. I've seen that now. And then also he did Food of the Gods, which... I remember seeing bits and pieces of that. I don't know if I've ever watched it all the way through in one sitting, but I also have watched the sequel quite a bit, as my dad randomly had that on VHS. Now, his last foray into the genre as a director was in 1989 with Satan's Princess. Gordon also produced a lot in the genre, as well as he came up with the stories or actually wrote the screenplay as well. That means he produced 13 films, many of the ones he also directed, and then he also has nine credits in the genre for the writing department. Now, George Worthing Yates wrote the screenplay here. He has total 29 credits, with the last one being Tormented here. Ten of them are in the horror genre, and he worked with Gordon quite a bit. And then another movie that he came up with a story that I've seen is the classic Them, which is the giant ant movie. Then we have Richard Carlson, who stars in this. He was in 108 films as an actor. Eight were horror. Of his works, I've seen The Creature from the Black Lagoon, where I believe he's... David Reed or Dr. Reed or something like that was in that movie. He was in Hold That Ghost, which is an Abbott and Costello film. And then he was also in The Ghost Breakers, which is a Bob Hope film. And I also have covered that recently on this podcast. 
Tormented was his last foray into the genre. Susan Gordon is actually the daughter of the director. She got her break appearing in her father's film Attack of the Puppet People when the actress who was cast fell ill. Now, she ended up with 27 credits in the genre, three of them in horror. The only one not named already is Picture Mommy Dead, which her father also did direct that one. Now, Susan did quite a bit of television with like the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Twilight Zone, and Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. And then, this is the only horror credit for Lugene Sanders, and her only film appearance, actually, is she was in three other television shows. And the same for Julie Redding, but she did have 22 acting credits aside from here, though. Now, we start this movie off learning that we're, you know, going to be by the beach as the credits roll. And it's actually interesting is that this is on an island. There is the most famous jazz pianist of Tom Stewart, who is living here, and he's portrayed by Carlson. And he's to be married to Meg, who is Lugene Sanders. This has upset Vi Mason, who is Redding, and it appears that Tom and her were an item and she wants him back. Vi thinks that she is better for him than the younger and more naive Meg, but he wants to be with Meg, and it's hinted at that the reason that he wants to is because her family is rich, and Vi is looking to mess things up by blackmailing him, or at least that's what she's implying. They meet in an old lighthouse on the island, and when V leans against a railing, it gives out and she falls and is just hanging on, you know, with one hand. Tom has to make a decision whether to help her or to just let her fall, and he does the latter, and then we get to see that she, you know, falls into some rocks and water below. He now thinks that he's clear from her, but that isn't the case, though. He finds her watch on the beach and then throws it out into the water, and that's not the last that he will see of it, though, as it does appear a couple more times. He is then haunted by her image, smelling her perfume, and even thinks that he sees her footprints on the sand following him and Meg when they're walking one night. The problem is that aside from smelling her the perfume, no one else sees or hears any of these things. It's all just him. This is something that I will kind of circle back to here in a few minutes. Now Meg's younger sister is Sandy, who is Susan Gordon. She's quite fond of Tom. Now she is a child, but they spend a lot of time together. And then also on the island is Mrs. Ellis, who is Lillian Adams. She's a blind woman and knows of the history here. This includes a boy who went missing and died. Now there is this kind of lore that there was a haunting that came from that or a lingering spirit that involves seaweed. Now, Tom seems to be descending into madness, thinking that Vi is haunting him in his dreams and the real world. He also has to worry about Nick, who is Joe Turkle, the boat captain who brought Vi to the island. She did bring up his name, and it took him a couple days to figure out who she was there coming to see, but he shows up wanting the fare that she owed him. But when he learns about Tom and who he is marrying, that raises the stakes a bit more. The pressure and stress Tom is dealing with seems to be getting worse and worse until it comes to a head, but is everything he is dealing with, is it real? Or is this stress causing him to you know, experience things that are just all in his head? I feel that recap there expands on the synopsis without going too heavy into spoilers. Now, I've said that I wasn't really too sure about what I was getting into, but when I was looking the movie up, it kept referring this as a schlock classic. I think a lot of this is more of Gordon's kind of filmography and saw a lot of things that he did this seems to be mostly the type of film that he would do but then i also saw this was covered on mystery science 3 or 3000 so i'm assuming that this is fallen into public domain so they could cover it without having to you know pay any sort of licensees fees there i could be wrong as i haven't you know looked into confirming this but one of the first things that struck me while i was you know watching this is it feels quite a bit like edgar Allan poe's the telltale heart tom is haunted by vi 
but he, we don't really know if he is or not. There are footprints in the sand. He sees them, but they're washed away before Meg does. There's a scene where Tom puts the wedding ring on Sandy's finger, and she states that he didn't. And when Tom sees Vi's hand underneath the piano, it's, that ring is on the finger, but the younger girl doesn't see it as it disappears before then. The ring does go missing, and I figured this was just a stress of everything getting to him and feeling guilty, as well as his upcoming marriage, and just kind of thinking that if he can get through that, then he'll be in the clear. There are things that make me question his stance as well. Mrs. Ellis smells the perfume of Vi in the lighthouse. She can also hear her chuckling. This was a pretty cool scene that I wish they would have taken a bit farther though, as it gets you right up to the point where I was like, okay, this is going to get a little bit more mean-spirited, but then it does something that I'm not the biggest fan of. Now, I will say that this could be Mrs. Ellis is a bit more in tune without her sight, so she might have a little bit able to kind of, you know, her smell might be heightened, and then she might actually be able to kind of speak with the dead in a way or at least to be a little bit more open to something like that now something does happen with meg's wedding dress and then something at the end makes me fall into the camp that vi is really driving tom mad and that there is a supernatural aspect to this film as well now the movie though is lacking a bit in depth for me it is better written than many movies like that work like this do so i will give credit there as there's some interesting aspects introduced just not necessarily fleshed out Tom is a musician, and Meg's father of Frank, who is Harry Fleer, isn't happy that they're to be married. Tom is successful, but Frank doesn't respect him, and I think Frank has a lot more money than what Tom is bringing to the table, so there's always that fear that his daughter is being married to a guy who just wants her money. Tom is presented as our hero, despite the bad things that he has done. I think he is supposed to make us sympathize with him when Nick, the boat guy, is introduced, but to be honest, it doesn't work for me. I did like the story it keeps getting more and more complicated though for sure as things go on. To move from this, I would say that the real hero here is Sandy. She sees the good in Tom, but a turn of events happen later in the movie. She is then plagued with doing the right thing and her being eaten away by her conscience about what she should do. Because, you know, he won't do the right thing, especially this far in. Meg is also innocent and aside from, you know, loving Tom unconditionally, Vi has a bit of depth where we get from the start here but she's willing to blackmail him to get him back but i mean she doesn't deserve to die like we get in the movie so there's kind of an interesting little duality being played with there since i've covered the characters themselves i'll move over to the acting i thought that it was pretty solid to be honest carlson does really well in playing this character that did something bad and trying to cover it up and then we get to see that it's being eaten away at by the knowledge of what he's done and trying to hide everything it is also interesting that I think the movie is trying to place him as our hero, but he's really not. He takes a dark turn at the end as well, which kind of causes me not to fall into that camp. Gordon is solid as a little girl here. She can be a bit annoying, but that's just children, and I don't actually think her performance is bad, but she does have a good heart for sure. Sanders plays the naive bride to be very well. We don't get much of Redding before she becomes a specter, but I think she does well at the haunting and kind of goading Tom on and just messing with him. Aside from that, Adams is fine. I don't think she plays a blind woman very well, though. I will say that, as there's a few times where she looks over at something, so it looks like she's just pretending. So I do have slight issues there. It is kind of fun as well to see a young Turkle. Now, many of you might not recognize the name, but he's the bartender from The Shining, and it didn't click to me until I was on IMDb looking stuff up for this movie, which I thought that was pretty cool that we get to see a young version of him in this movie. The rest of the cast is fine for what was needed as well. 
The last thing I would go over would be the effects. I think that this is where things get a little bit cheesy and I can see it kind of falling more into that schlock camp because seeing Vi translucent is fine. That is something that we've seen in decades prior and it still works here. I don't actually mind that. What I don't really care for is just seeing her hand at one point in the movie. I do think that there's times with seeing her head is something that's a little bit cheesy. I get what they're going for, but I don't think that's needed. But there's a gag with a picture where it would have worked much better, in my opinion, just to have her whole body in the frame and kind of have her a little bit farther in the back instead of where they have her prominently placed. Really, the only time that it makes sense is the scene where Tom is trying to cover up her head because she just keeps yelling. And this takes him to run into Nick. I like what ends up happening here when he opens up the what he puts around her head, though. That was kind of a cool thing that they're playing with. And I almost like this seaside, you know, people that live on the water type mythology that they're bringing up. The cinematography and the location are solid. It does create a bit of isolation with that, which I'm always a big fan of, especially when you can kind of contain things like we do on this island. Keeping with theme of the haunting, the sound design here works for me when they're having people yell. The music fits for what they needed as well as we get some jazz music that he is playing. And I mean, I didn't necessarily realize that jazz musicians were hated so much back in the day during this time frame. And then before I close everything out here for this review, I do have some trivia that I want to share that I found on IMDb. A portion of the score actually came from William Castle's House on Haunted Hill from 1959, which Allied Artists had distributed the year previous. On the German poster for the movie, actresses Susan Gordon and Julie Redding's names are mixed up and printed as Julie Gordon and Susan Redding. Also, director Burt I. Gordon's name was misprinted as Burt J. Gordon. Harry Fleer is dubbed by Paul Fries. Susan Gordon, the daughter of the director, was only 10 years old when she played the role of Sandy. And then included on Something Weird videos, Monsters Crash the Pajama Party 1965, Spook Show Spectacular Special Edition DVD, now that's all I could really find about it. So to close this out, this is a movie that isn't as bad as I was expecting. It is a different take on a story like The Telltale Heart, where they're playing with the idea of this is happening in Tom's head or is it? I like that it pulls you in both directions until the end, and I think that the acting of the stars really helps this as well. There are some aspects I do think could have been fleshed out a little bit more to really work for me, and some of the effects are a bit cheesy. Not as much as I was expecting, though, to be honest, and I would rate this as just over average for me. I will warn you, it is in black and white, so keep that in mind, but I rather enjoyed this movie overall. And I should also warn you, it is from 1960, as I said, but I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you to one last musical break before I close out the show.
Welcome back one last time, and I want to thank you for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close this out here, if you'd like to get in touch with me with any of your thoughts or anything you want me to read on the show, please go ahead and send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. And also, if you have any sort of feedback, if you want to send it to me through there, that would be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of my past episodes, that is Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, you can do so at David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, if you want to follow me, that's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. The Journey with a Cinephile also has its own Instagram with Journey with a Cinephile. And if you'd like to download the Flick Chat app and get over on the conversation there, it's been a little bit quiet there. That's partially on my fault just because life's been pretty hectic, but you can download that on ios or android and my join code when you download that is journey with a cinephile and then the last thing i would just ask to do if whatever podcatching device you're listening to this on if you could go ahead and rate and review this show just so i can get an idea of what i'm doing that you like what i'm doing that you don't like and kind of just make this the best show possible so any feedback positive or negative would be you know greatly appreciated there and then I'm going to do probably another Journey Through the Aughts episode. I am doing a movie challenge currently on Letterboxd, so that's going to end up taking up a lot of the kind of mini-reviews as I'm also incorporating the podcast under the stairs as I'm still trying to work through the summer challenge series list for that. But I'm not sure what the 2020 release is going to be. I do know I have a couple screeners that are due up. I'm probably going to hold off on doing those just because there is a little bit of an embargo to do those, but I will give you more details as things come up. I will, though, find a 2020 release to watch as well as watching another 1960s film. 
Not just sure what those two will be, but I want to thank you once again for listening. I hope you enjoyed coming on this journey with me. This is David Garrett Jr., your tour guide. And before I sign off, I will just say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe doing it and have a great time. But once again, I am signing off and have a great day.